Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we're passionate about the beautiful simplicity and transformative power of the gospel. And I am so glad that you're here today. You're in for a real treat today. It was a joy to finish the conversation I just had with Dr. Brett Salkeld about transubstantiation, what the Catholic Church is teaching, and how it might not actually be that far in some ways from what some of the reformers were trying to get at. Maybe they were trying to answer the same question, and although they might have done it in different ways, maybe we can learn about one another from really digging into these things. I think it's going to clear up misconceptions. I think you're going to learn a lot, and we even talk about where do we go from here and how do we work on bridging some of these divides while not making light of the doctrinal differences that do exist. I really loved it. His approach to this topic is eminently charitable and scholarly and fair. I think you're really going to enjoy it. But before we get to it, I want to say a real quick thank you to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make this channel possible, especially to my patrons. To those of you that give monthly to this channel out of your great generosity to support not only the channel, but me, thank you so, so much. It means the world to me. If you would like to support this channel, support me and what we're up to here at Gospel Simplicity, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. And I also know that there's some of you that don't want to sign up for another subscription, any recurring things. I get that. You have enough of those in your life. I hear you. If you'd like to make a one-time donation to the channel, you can do that. You can go to paypal.me slash gospel simplicity if you'd like to do that. I'd also like to say a thank you today to our sponsor, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim time with God in their daily lives. And, well, they do this by creating beautiful Bibles. And if you haven't seen them, you're, you're seeing them now, but they're complete with full-page photos and beautiful text layouts that will cause you to read Scripture differently than it being laid out like a book. It's going to be, you're going to read more slowly, more contemplatively, more prayerfully, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. So if you want to check them out, you can go to kindredapostle.com and use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order. With all that being said, I hope you guys enjoy the video. Well, today I am joined by Dr. Brett Salkeld. Dr. Brett Salkeld is Archdiocesan Theologian for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Regina and is the co-host of the Thinking Faith podcast. His latest book is Transubstantiation, Theology, History, and Christian Unity. He and his wife live in Regina with their seven kids. And yes, he had uh, the book there. I, I should have had my copy. It's sitting over on the table. It is a great book. Really recommend people check it out. And I'd love to ask, what interested you in writing on this topic? Yeah, it was uh, it was my doctoral dissertation, and I was I was actively looking for a t uh, an ecumenical topic. So I had written my master's thesis on purgatory, uh, and that, that's actually a little book uh, out from Paulus Press. If anyone's interested in that question, as a uh, question between Catholics and evangelicals, that's kind of my bag is Catholic evangelical dialogue. And I was in a grad class with my mentor Margaret O'Gara. Uh, on ecumenical dialogue and we were sort of both of us were sort of actively watching for a topic and I actually I wrote a, a short paper for her in that class on real presence in ecumenical dialogue and she always met with students to discuss their papers afterwards and we both met uh, we both we met and we both had the idea in our head that this was a doctoral dissertation topic and it, it, it was really the synchronicity was kind of amazing because 
I came in and said, you know, when I was doing my research on this, I was thinking this might be, and she said, when I read your paper, I thought transubstantiation is Brett Sockold's doctoral dissertation. That's wonderful. Um, so, so that's how it came about. And, and the bigger picture, if you can, you know, guess from the purgatory uh, topic is I look for the, for the neuralgic hot button issues between Catholics and evangelicals. My own personal history has some of that in my family. And I remember the standard arguments that happen about the Pope or Mary or the Eucharist or purgatory or, you know, those kinds of one. And I just, I felt like the conversations in general were not productive that people were talking past each other. And I'm, I'm allergic to misunderstanding. Like I, I just, it drives me batty. And so that I dove in to say like, it's, if there's misunderstanding here, I'm going to get to the bottom of it. So that's, that's kind of where the book came from. I love that. That's wonderful. And I love the way you put it. I'm allergic to misunderstanding that fits in very well, with kind of the mission and of what we're doing here at gospel simplicity. So I'm super excited to have you on. And as you talked about, you know, being interested in ecumenism, I, I think I mentioned this in the email, but I actually came across your work from a class I was taking on ecumenism and in an interview you had done with my professor, um, Dr. Um, oh my goodness. Am I going to Jonathan Armstrong? Jonathan Armstrong. Wow. I so hope he doesn't see this video where I blank on his name like weeks after having class. I'm going to blame it on the Latin intensive I'm taking right now. Dr. Jonathan Armstrong. Yes. And it was such a great interview. Um, I thought, man, I'd love to discuss this book and his work with him. Was and, that interview on the, on the same book? Yes, it was actually. Because I've done two with Dr. Armstrong. We did one on the book and we both enjoyed it so much that we did another one on Mary. Oh, um, wonderful. So if people are interested in Catholic evangelical dialogue on Mary, they can check that out as well. The, it's the, the Aqueduct Project. Uh, Dr. Armstrong and I had a, had an hour-long conversation about Mary, which was really delightful. So just throw yes. that out there. I will be sure to link to that. He's done great work with those interviews. And something that I found interesting when I first picked up your book, as far as just like looking at the cover, uh, that I'd love to ask is, you know, you mentioned your first book out by Paulist Press. And if I saw a book with the big title Transubstantiation on the front, I might expect maybe Ignatius, maybe Paulist, maybe any other number of Catholic publishers. But this was put out by Baker, if I'm not mistaken. What's right. the story with that? Because that's yeah. not what I would anticipate. Right. I mean, so so I was I was let me say it at first, I was lucky to get Baker. They were my like first pick. Uh, and it's, it's not easy to get a doctoral dissertation published in, in a kind of mainstream forum. Often they're published in like monograph series by like high end academic publishers. And they're, they're generally only purchased by specialists and theological libraries. Um, so I was, I was very fortunate, but the reason I, I had my sights on Baker is, is because they're really at the forefront of ecumenical uh, work. And I didn't write this book just for Catholics. I, I wanted uh, Protestant readers to read and engage with it. And Baker has a Catholic and Protestant readership. But also, um, Baker, some people might know, has actually, even though they're a historically Protestant um, publishing house, they have a significant Catholic offering. They, they actually publish the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, um, and they have a handful of Catholic employees and Catholic authors. Uh, my acquisitions editor was not Catholic, but he and I ran in similar ecumenical circles and ran into each other at conferences. And that's really where I got to know him. His name is David Nelson. 
and uh, it was through it was through conversations at at a couple of ecumenical conferences with Dave uh, over beers, you know, after the sessions, kind of thing, go out for dinner and and then stay up talking. That he got interested in the project, and so he and I sort of connected uh, over that and stayed in touch. It actually took a couple years. The book was we were we almost had a proposal ready to go to their board, and we had twins. And twins put a halt on every like we took a full year off before I got back to Dave with the with the proposal. And he said, actually, things at Baker have become even the editorial direction has become even more favorable to a book like this in that time you had off. Uh, and so, you know, maybe maybe the proposal might not have been accepted a year ago. Who knows? But uh, but then it, it went through and it was accepted. And uh, I, they were a delight to work with. I mean, they are a top-notch top organization. Um, the copy editing, the marketing, I mean, the, the covers, beautiful. The blurbs on the back, I can't believe what they got people to say. <laughs> the one, I, I don't know if you've read the one by Paul Hinlicky at the bottom. I laugh every time I read it. I mean, it's just, it's it's wild. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it's Baker's been a delight to work with. And, you know, other I mean, Catholic publishers might have done a very good job, but I, I felt like Baker had my audience in their scope, you know. That's wonderful. And it's so great to hear how that all worked out with the twins and then it working with the editorial board in that way. That's That's a really neat backstory to that. You know, in the preface to your book, you have this great quote where you say, this is the great conundrum of transubstantiation in ecumenical dialogue. We are quite certain we disagree about a word that almost no one, Catholic or Protestant, actually understands. So in your view, what are some of the most common misconceptions to which you are allergic uh, when it comes to transubstantiation? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the big one, for, and it's for Catholics and Protestants, is that transubstantiation is some kind of clandestine, disguised, physical or chemical kind of um, change in the elements of bread and wine. And so the difference is that Catholics feel the need to affirm this and Protestants feel the need to reject it. But in general, they hold the same misconception. And in fact, I discovered this because it was my own misconception. This is what I discovered in my paper that I referenced in the grad class with Dr. O'Gara is um, I had, you know, you you get caught in these Internet debates where people say, like, well, if it was his really his body, he would have run out of body, you know, after after just a few Eucharists. Like he couldn't have been more than maybe 180 pounds. Right. Like and and you think like then you then you do these ad hoc rationalizations like, well, he's God, so he could just make more, which is like nothing like what the church has ever said about Eucharistic presence. And and it's these kinds of conversations and these ad hoc rationalizations that just felt inadequate, but I didn't know what else you were supposed to do. And of course, they're not convincing to people who don't already agree with you. I mean, they just seem like you're grasping at straws, right? And then I, for this paper, I started really reading the tradition and how the the, the term developed and how it's been interpreted by good theologians. And it was just like, this is way better than what I <laughs> what I thought I was supposed to believe. Like, this is not about like some divine magic trick that none of us can see but are supposed to believe in. This is about um, understanding that reality is what God makes it to be. 
I mean, it, it, like, and so for Thomas Aquinas, who we're going to talk about, I'm sure the, the most fundamental analogy for transubstantiation is the doctrine of creation. This is about the God who, who speaks and things are what they are, that, that their identity is what they are in God or not at all. And, and that's the, the changes at that level. It's the, at, at the level of God given identity, not at the level of, you know, um, some hidden, uh, physical manipulation. You know, you, you hear these atheists who like kidnap a host and they take it into the lab and they run a test on it and turns out, Oh, it's just bread. And Thomas Aquinas would have said, well, of course, that's, that's what I said. That's but the accidents remain. That's what I mean. I mean, the physical, uh, elements are unchanged. That's part of the definition of, of, of the, the doctrine, right? So I think that's the basic misunderstanding is locating locating reality, we say real presence, locating reality at a superficial physical level and not thinking about what Christians actually mean by reality. You know, are you really baptized? Well, can I measure it? Can I take you in a lab and discern it? No, I guess you're not really baptized. Well, none of us think that, at least I hope we don't. So we know that's a superficial way of talking about the real. And so transubstantiation is really a deep dive into like, metaphysics like what do we think is actually real is it is it what we can see with a microscope or is it what god creates to be what it is yeah i i'd love to dig into that a little bit because i think for many people they're going to have some misunderstandings on this and i know for me growing up as a protestant with only kind of knowing like a few catholics in the family who are maybe nominally catholic i think the first time i came across transubstantiation the impression i had was so that thing that looks a lot like bread to me and tastes a lot like bread, I'm supposed to think isn't bread. And it just seemed to be a little confusing and right. to stretch credulity in that way, as in saying, you know, I it, it's somehow transformed itself like that isn't bread anymore. Can can you maybe just like dive into that a bit? You brought up yeah. these terms substance and accidents that come up in these conversations, which I think for most people aren't terms they're using every day. And so maybe right. if we can kind of help people understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. So Catholics will say that, so technically transubstantiation means the substance of the bread has become the substance of the body of Christ. The substance of the wine has become the substance of the blood of Christ. Um, and we say substance is, is more important for identity than accidents. And maybe I can give an example on that in a minute. Uh, so I'll circle back, but so, so the appropriate term, if you want to identify this, is to say it's the body of Christ rather than bread, because substance is, is the deep identity and, and accidents aren't. But Thomas says, like, um, your senses are not deceived when you encounter the, the, something that looks like bread, tastes like bread, because your, your, your senses perceive accidents, and the accidents are genuinely there. So when Catholics say the bread isn't there anymore, um, that can be misleading. We mean the deepest reality is no longer bread. We don't mean to say that what your senses are encountering is some kind of disguise. Thomas is very clear that what your senses encounter is genuinely there. And in fact, that's the logic of the sacrament. The whole thing is predicated on the idea that your senses can perceive the symbol. Now this doesn't mean Catholics think it's only a symbol. It means sacraments 
the definition in Thomas is that God uses some element of material creation to represent something beyond itself. That's that's what a sacrament does. And if you cannot perceive the symbol, um, then you've got no sacrament. And he, he'll even say, um, oh, what? Oh, shoot, I've misplaced the train of thought. Um, yeah, <laughs> I had it, but I just let it slip. Anyways, I think I made I think I made the point, but follow up if there's yeah further question. Yeah, and so if um, just for people that are completely new to this substance, the thing that is most real about it, and accident. Right. What are we getting at with accident? Yeah, good. So so if we if we think about um, you know the the famous line from Herodotus that you can't step in the same river twice. It shows up okay. in the Disney movie Pocahontas in the in the sort of theme song, The Colors of the Wind. She says, the wonderful thing about rivers is you can't step in the same river twice. That's from that's from ancient Greek philosophy. And the question is a question of identity. What makes this river to be the river that it is? And of course, the point of, of that um, aphorism is, well, if I go step in, I live by the Capel River. If I go step in the Capel River today, and I go back tomorrow and step in it, the water that I stepped in the first day is gone. And and the banks have, have shifted subtly and the vegetation and the animals have moved or grown or died or whatever. It's always changing, right? Um, and so in a sense, yeah, it's it's not the same. But in another sense, we all recognize that it's the same river. And not only is it the same river yesterday and today, um, it's also like we can look back thousands of years, we say it's the largest glacial spillway in the world. A glacier had stopped retreating uh, on, on the Canadian prairie. And then when it melted, it all came down in one spot and carved this, this valley out of the flat landscape. It's really a remarkable geological feature. But if we can say that the Capel Valley is a glacial spillway, that means we're identifying it with some entity that existed thousands of years ago that began just with the initial carving out of the Canadian prairie, uh, some soil by some water. And we, we, in our minds, we identify that valley, even when it was three inches deep, <laughs> with the Capel Valley today. So what are we saying? We're saying that there's something beyond the physical, even as the physical changes over millennia, there's something identifiable that we can perceive, not with our senses, because our senses only perceive the external physical elements of the valley. We can perceive with our minds a deeper reality beyond what our senses perceive. Same thing happens with a human being. The, and you were, you were a one-cell creature at one point. That cell is long gone. In fact, your body regenerates its cells like every seven years or something. So but I can still identify you with the single-celled creature that was conceived in your mother's womb, and I can identify you with the, the man on his deathbed, God willing, 60 years from now, you know? Um, but your, cell, your physical features change all the time over that period. And so what is the thing that I'm identifying, not with my senses, but with my intellect? That's your substance. That's your deepest identity. And so, uh, Thomas is looking for a way to say, and even before Thomas, the tradition, which comes up with the word before Thomas himself does, but he explains it best. The tradition is looking for a way to say, 
there's a reality that is deeper than the physical that is what is at issue here because there was a debate in the in the medieval world about whether this was real or not and some people said well it is real but then it's a physical thing that has been somehow disguised kept from our eyes god has put a veil over it so that we're not disgusted by eating raw flesh this i mean it got really graphic right and the other side said well that's crazy it must not be real it must be just a symbol and the tradition was not satisfied with this false dichotomy. And it needed a category to say there's something so real, even more real than the physical, that is what is affected by God's word in, in, in the Eucharist. And and substance did that heavy lifting. Awesome. That's really helpful. And I wanted to get into the history of this a bit. And for today's purposes, it won't be a question of like when did belief in the real presence start because that's kind of outside the scope of this. And the book really focuses on the fact that we're all trying to, it, you know, we all being, you take Calvin, Luther, and the Catholic tradition, trying to express some type of real presence here, doing it in different ways, which right. could be another conversation. But what I want to ask is this language of transubstantiation. When do we start seeing that? And when does that really take hold? Hey, we'll be right back to the interview, but first I want to tell you about another sponsor for today, and that is Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors that exist to help you get the help you need. You know, one of the first YouTube videos I ever made was called You Can Have Jesus and a Therapist Too. And what I wanted to do in that video was draw out the fact that so many people are struggling with mental health. And the last thing we want to do is make it more difficult for people to reach out to get the help they need by creating this stigma around it. It's something that I'm really passionate about and think we need to end in Christian circles. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. Their counselors all will be counseling from a Christian perspective, and you can connect with them from any country in the world. They have counselors that speak many different languages. And hey, if you, it's important to you to have a counselor from your specific tradition or background, they can do their part to try to pair you up with one of them as well. All of their counselors are licensed with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with these counselors in a variety of ways. Four, in fact, you can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, or messaging. All of the messaging is secure. And if it's between scheduled ses sessions, you'll receive a response within 24 to 48 hours. If this is interesting to you, if you think this would be helpful for you or maybe a loved one, I'd encourage you to go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, first of all, you'll get 10% off your order and you'll be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity to be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours and get 10% off your first month. Faithful counseling costs $260 per month which gets you unlimited messaging with your counselor in four 30-minute sessions. But again, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, you'll get 10% off that first month. Lastly, faithful counseling is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line or hotline. You can find one of them at www.crisistextline.org. Please do so. You can reach out. You do not have to do this alone. Well, thank you all so much, and I will let you get back to the video. But if you want to check them out, again, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. The link is in my bio and in the pinned comment. Well, back to the interview. Right. So this this um, debate in the medieval church that I referenced, um, is it, it, well, it first sort of launches in the ninth century when 
uh, one of Charlemagne's sons asks a couple of monks at Corby um, whether Christ is really present or only in figure. And one of them says only in figure, and one of them says really present. Um, but they but they interpret the words differently, so that most people think they didn't actually disagree that much. They were just using words differently than one another. But it start it it opens up a chasm, this false dichotomy. And two hundred years later, um, the 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 fight goes full blown with a fellow named Berengarius of Tours who says it can't be real. Uh, it can only be a symbol. And he makes a series of arguments, grammatical in particular, but, and we don't need to go into them all here, but the, the historical uh, point is he gets dragged to Rome and he's forced to swear an oath, uh, re recanting his heresies. And he swears an oath that says Christ is present. And then it uses a Latin adverb, sensualiter, which means something like Christ is present in the realm of the five senses. Now, everyone knows that can't be right, because as you said, you've used your five senses, and that's not the way Christ is present in the Eucharist. Um, so, I mean, the implication there, of course, is that it's a disguised kind of presence or whatever. Um, but it's, it's, it's an in, inadequately articulated oath. And... Uh, Berengarius goes back home, recants the oath, says it was sworn under duress, which is almost certainly true, actually. Um, and then and then the, the fight goes on between him and his theological opponents. 20 years later, he's back in Rome, and he has to swear another oath. And by this time, his opponents have found better categories. And the second oath of Berengarius includes the adverb substantialiter, which which we would say substantially. Christ is substantially present, which means that it is not in the substance is what is present to the intellect, not what is present to the senses. And once the second oath of Berengarius introduces this language of substance into the this category, by the way, it's an old category. I mean, we say consubstantial with the father, Theology has used this category before to do very similar work, right? It's work about deepest identity, um, but it's introduced into Eucharistic theology here. And once that happens, it's only a generation before someone coins the term transubstantiation, which just literally means a change of substance. It's like a transformation is a change of form, it, according to some Aristotelian categories that none of us are familiar with, but we use them all the time. Um, transubstantiation is a change of substance and it's the word starts being used before it's really carefully defined so it's actually at Lateran 4 and 1215 the term is used in church teaching for the first time but it's really not nailed down yet it's still a very open term and there's various ways it might have been conceptualized and it's with the work of Thomas Aquinas in the following century um, or later that century that um, that it gets made precise. And the Catholic tradition has always looked at Thomas's articulation as the definitive articulation. The Council of Trent, which which um, sort of endorses transubstantiation, takes Thomas almost word for word and skips over 300 years of other people messing up the doctrine. Um, and so Tom, Thomas is the go-to locus 
for for anyone who wants to figure out what what transubstantiation is. That's really helpful, and thank you for kind of helping us getting uh, get get to kind of the core of what's being taught here, and perhaps what's not being taught as well, which can be equally as important. As we mm-hmm. begin to shift into kind of where this led to in the Reformation and how that led to all types of division, I wanted to bring up this quote from your professor, uh, Margaret O'Gara, who said, if its intention being uh, transubstantiation, its apologetic purpose and its cultural context could be recovered, transubstantiation might be heard more sympathetically by those outside the Roman Catholic tradition. So what what is she getting at here as far as its apologetic purpose and how have we maybe lost sight of that in our current conversations about it right so if we think about the original context in which it emerges the basic debate is between naive realists on the one hand and naive symbolists on the other hand well what's the basic problem between catholics and protestants on eucharistic presence today catholics more often than not are naive realists and Protestants, more often than not, are naive symbolists. And and we imagine these two categories as sort of mutually exclusive, which, by the way, the early church never had any debates about Eucharistic presence because they were all basically Platonists. And for them, symbol and reality weren't opposites, right? Like if you ask a Platonist, like, is this real or a symbol? The Platonist says, yes. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't an issue for them. Um, but once it becomes an issue, it's basically repeated from the ninth century onward uh, between a, a realistic uh, and a, a symbolic interpretation. And what tra- the work transubstantiation does is to sh- is to integrate and balance those two elements um, to articulate a presence that, that is probably best described as sacramental, right? It's deeply real, but it is predicated on the logic of symbol. Um, remember where I lost my train of thought five minutes ago? Here's here's where it was. Um, pre- think about what it means to be predicated on the logic of symbol. Catholics have have a have a tricky problem. Uh, if you say this is really Jesus, then you can't throw it in the garbage and you can't spill it on the floor and you can't right. You got to be very attentive to what happens to the elements. Um, but then you say, well if a little piece breaks off and floats off in the air as dust, you know, or, or if I smell the wine, what am I smelling? I got Jesus all up my nose, but that means that Jesus is sort of floating everywhere. And and we got to like, some people actually once put in a request that all the hymnals be burnt in the church because they were covered in Jesus dust. And the only appropriate way to get rid of it is, is burning. Right. And the Vatican said, no, that's you're mis- you, you're under a misapprehension. <laughs> But, but okay, what's, what's the point? Um, we don't consider the tiny particles of wine that we smell to actually be wine. Um, we don't consider tiny dust particles that are no longer discernible as bread as to be bread. And if they're not wine or bread from a physical sense, they're not Jesus in a sacramental sense. The same thing happens, by the way, when we consume the Eucharist, when we digest People say one of the big questions is uh, is it's called stercoronism, and it's this crude idea like, does Jesus end up in the sewer, right? If you eat him, don't you eliminate him in the natural way? And the tradition has said, no, because you don't eliminate bread either. 
at, at, at some point very shortly after you ingest it, you stop calling it bread because it's not discernible as bread. All this is predicated on symbolic logic. It means if you can't see, perceive, understand bread, whether that's dust or or digestive, and it's not Jesus's body anymore, right? And so it's that it's that balance and integration of the symbolic element, which is necessary for a sacrament to be a sacrament, and the real the real element that is necessary to uphold the words of scripture and the constant tradition of the church, that we're not just making this up. This is a gift that God gives to his church and it comes from outside us and it's not by our own power. Um, when we say that it's real, the deepest meaning of that is that it's God's action and not ours, right? You and I might be able to um, agree that, uh, uh, um, you know, a colored piece of cloth represents our nation and we will we will act accordingly we won't burn it we won't trample on it you know um because because we can a symbol can genuinely mean something but we're saying it's even it's even deeper than you and i agreeing on our national flag because we might well have chosen something else and we're still in charge of that symbol but the eucharist is not something we're in charge of the eucharist is a gift from god and so when we say Christ's presence is real. We're saying God is the actor and the community doesn't make the Eucharist. The, the community receives the gift from God. So those are the things we want to balance. The symbol that is necessary for a sacrament to be a sacrament and the reality that is necessary for the Eucharist to be a gift. And transubstantiation does that. That's that's the that's the goal of it. And I think if if that's appreciated by Protestants, they can see that it's 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 a it's a pretty good response to the perennial problem of Eucharistic presence that we're still with today. And that, you know, we're, we'll get into this in a second. It's the same problem Luther and Calvin are trying to solve at the time of the Reformation. Everyone's trying to solve the same problem. Uh, they're trying to integrate symbol and reality together. And if we think transubstantiation is the victory of reality over symbol, then elements of the tradition are going to rightly push back against that. You know, the, the reformers appealed to Augustine. Calvin, in particular, appealed to Augustine to say, that's overkill. That's not the tradition. Um, and and so, um, yeah, there, that, that's, the, that's the intention. And we, and we all have the same intention, which I think is so important to recognize. We're all, we're all trying to say it's real, and we're all trying to say, but of course there's a symbolic element that, that has to be acknowledged. Yes, and for me, in coming across your work and reading the book, this was really kind of like the, the key point and the paradigm shift of instead of these being things pitted against each other, which I had already come to appreciate through some Calvin scholars that I've gotten to take classes with of, you know, let's not put Calvin on the, hey, just naive symbol side. And then also the not pit transubstantiation as the naive uh, presence or realist side. I forget which way you said that, but that right. it's actually trying to answer this question and plot twist, that's what Calvin and Luther are trying to do. Not to say that there aren't any differences, but seeing transubstantiation as an answer to that question rather than the thing that causes that question was a really big shift for me and something I really enjoyed, which is why I was so excited to have this conversation. But I want to get to the Reformation. Awesome. Yeah, I want to get to the Reformation a little bit here because all of the Reformers had a bit of an issue with transubstantiation. Yeah. And even though they might have been trying to answer the same question, they weren't pleased with 
at least their understanding of the articulation of the right. doctrine of transubstantiation. Of course, it's a little difficult to say, you know, get inside their minds, but they left us lots of writings on this. Why is it that they all took issue with this doctrine? Yeah, and literally all. I don't know one reformer who was sympathetic to transubstantiation. I mean, it's rejected en masse, starting with Luther and everyone else follows. Uh, to, to Luther's chagrin, at, at, at a certain point, Luther's like, hey, guys, I'd rather have transubstantiation than whatever you're talking about over there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sometimes Luther lets cats out of bags and then he wants them he wants them back in again. But anyway, I mean, it's it's universally rejected. And um, the, as I what I argue in the book, I, I think it's pretty clear if you start looking and, and also the, it's related to this idea I mentioned earlier that Trent skips over everything after Aquinas. Um, because immediately after Aquinas, there starts to be a kind of um, crumbling of the doctrine. It stops, it stops meaning what it meant for Aquinas, and it slowly morphs. And what happens, this is pretty complex, so we'll see how well I do on this. It's, this is deep theoretical work in the book. But what happens is the term substance, uh, the, the philosophical term, um, is shifts and it stops being that deeper element that is present to the intellect that our mind can apprehend after our senses have addressed the, the physical properties. And it starts being one more of the physical properties. And once, and which is how we use the word today, right? If you watch like a crime drama and they're like, oh, there was like a powdery white substance at the crime scene. They mean, they mean physical stuff, right? They don't mean deepest identity underlying the physical, right? Um, once substance becomes essentially one more accident, then transubstantiation stops working. And it starts being exactly what it's not supposed to be, which is some kind of clandestine physical uh, um, reaction or change, right? And so um, starting already with SCOTUS, and you can draw a line through a series of nominalist philosophers, uh, William of Ockham, and Luther tells us exactly who his teacher is, Pierre Dailly, the learned Cardinal of Cambrai. And, and that group said, um, transubstantiation is incoherent. We believe it because the church taught it authoritatively, but it's actually it actually doesn't work which is Thomas Aquinas' roll over in his grave to hear theologians saying, I believe something that is nonsense on the authority of the church. Like in Thomas's world, that's not even possible, right? Um, and so you have these people who say, it's, it's not coherent, but I accept it on authority. Well, how, that's, how is that going to play with Luther? <laughs> Luther's not going to take it on authority, right? So Luther says, look, Pierre Dailly, the learned cardinal of Cambrai, who studied under so-and-so, who studied under so-and-so, who studied under Occam, who studied, you know, right? Um, he told me it's nonsense, and I and I have no, I, I've already rejected church authority on other grounds. So I'm just going to not bother with it, right? It, I don't need to believe this unnecessary, incoherent, Aristotelian, philosophical explanation. All I need, says Luther at the beginning, he changes his tune a little later. All I need is the word of God in the scriptures. That's all I need. Jesus says, this is my body, done. 
And so Luther, in many ways, is like the church for the first like 900 years, which just said, oh, yeah, that's what the Bible says. So good enough for me. It's only when other Protestants say it's nonsense, it can't be real, it must be a symbol, then Luther has recourse to some philosophy. But at first he just says, I don't want philosophy. I, I just want the word of God. Give me the word of God, you know. Um, Calvin comes later. It's important to remember Calvin's a second generation uh, reformer. And his context is quite different. Calvin comes on the scene when the Lutherans and the Zwinglians uh, are already duking it out. And the Lutherans are the realists, and the, the Zwinglians are the symbolists, and Calvin is trying to walk the line between them. And, and the fascinating thing is, I think that means he's in a very similar position to Thomas Aquinas, who was trying to walk the line between the symbolists and the realists in, in the medieval time. Now, the, the, the important difference is, by the time Thomas comes along, Thomas wasn't involved in the fight with Berengarius. That was the generation before. So by the time Thomas comes along, the, the solution is there in principle, and he just articulates it really well. Calvin doesn't have that same privilege. He's got to deal with it while these people are living and fighting and attacking him, actually. I mean, it's fascinating to read Calvin because he's getting it from both sides. And when he writes to the Lutherans to be try sort of amenable, he sounds like a Lutheran. And when he writes to the, the Swiss, you know, he sounds like the Swiss. And so then everyone's suspicious of him. The Swiss think he's too Lutheran and the Lutherans think he's too Swiss. And he's, you know, he's caught in the middle. And and as you mentioned, his his reputation becomes a pure symbolist. He's imagined to be one of the Swiss. But when you read him, he's he's not. Uh, he, I mean, he he sometimes rejects them in very strong terms, especially when he's talking to Lutherans. Uh, so that you know, that's some of that that dynamic that's going on at, at the Reformation. But they're uh, but they're all always confronted with the same basic problem that that the Catholic tradition was confronted with, you know, 400 years earlier, and that Thomas articulated 300 years earlier. Thank you. Yes, it's it's fascinating history, and as you said, it's interesting to watch Luther go from kind of a, a simple answer to. Uh, and kind of disagreeing with the Catholics to being horrified at what's happening in Switzerland and saying, you know, I'd rather drink blood with the Pope than wine with the Zwinglians in his famous that's, quote there. That's a great line. I, Luther is so quotable. <laughs> he is eminently quotable. And yeah, for for better and for worse. And for but worse. <laughs> uh, he, yes, he, he was a, a man of colorful language. But it's really interesting that comparison you make between Calvin and Aquinas. And I'd like to delve into that a bit. So they're mm -hmm. both trying to do a similar thing where on the one hand, there's this sense of maybe the naive realists and the naive symbolists and Aquinas's day or right before Aquinas, those were different groups, but a similar dynamic is going on in the Protestant world as they're trying to get through these things. And, it, from my perspective, it's one of the great tragedies of the Reformation that like at Marburg Colloquy, they, they couldn't come together on these mm -hmm. things. But Calvin's attempting to do that. In what ways does he take up that problem perhaps differently than Aquinas? You know, yeah, there's a few key things. I mean, Calvin is, uh, he's, he's, he doesn't have the same philosophical categories. In fact, he's rejected them more or less out of hand. 
he seems familiar with some of the distinctions. At certain points, he he refers to the distinction of the sounder schoolman, which I am not ashamed to employ. You know, things like that, right? Um, but he's also suspicious that it didn't that that the schoolman's distinctions were just too ivory tower. Sure, maybe maybe Thomas Aquinas didn't have a terrible idea about the Eucharist, but all the all the common people who use his language do, and so. I'm not going to use that language because it's too open to misunderstanding. Now, one of the big problems is in in your in a modern world, and I, I mean modern in the like already at the Reformation, we're already in a modern world. Any any articulation of Eucharistic presence is going to be hard to understand because the modern world rejects this the idea that God makes things to be what they are at their deepest level. So if you want to say that this is really Jesus. Um, in any way at all, the modern world is not going to like your categories. So I don't, I don't think you can just sidestep one set of categories and find better ones. Uh, we're, we're all sort of up against the same, you know, challenge. But so he, he gets rid of Thomas's categories and he wants to use other categories. One of the things that he does, which, which theologians have recognized uh, is really analogous to Thomas, is he employs the Holy Spirit as this sort of active agent. And he says, the spirit can make present, uh, you know, from a distance, what is, what it, it, make present here, what is genuinely at a distance, right? So for, for Calvin, the ascension is a huge deal. Like Jesus is ascended. He is at the right hand of God. He's not on your altar. (laughs) And he worries that transubstantiation sort of pulls Jesus down out of heaven. Um, but then he says, but the Holy Spirit can make present what is seated at the right hand of God, even, you know, here among us, right? So transubstantiation does, or it's not trans, the Holy Spirit in Calvin does some of the same work that transubstantiation does in Thomas. And it's actually fascinating because Thomas invokes the Holy Spirit at, at, at similar points. And if I can actually mention Luther again, Transubstantiation doesn't provide an explanation of how something happens so much as it describes what happens. But when it comes to the question of how it happens, um, Thomas's answer is the power of God. (laughs) Only God could change the substance of one thing to the substance of another thing. And when he is is, um, thinking about how God might do this, how does God exercise God's power, he's got two answers. One is by his word, and this is the analogy with creation, right? God creates by his word. God consecrates the Eucharist by his word. He says, and something is. Well, that's Luther's emphasis, right? It's by the word of God that this is how this happens. And what's the other um, theological category that Thomas uses when he wants to say, how does the power of God realize this? The Holy Spirit, which is what... Calvin uses. I mean, so both of these uh, images, which are, I mean, and then you start thinking about it in Trinitarian terms. You've got the Father, the Word, which is the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how is God giving us his gift in the Eucharist by his Word and by his Spirit? Luther emphasizes one, Calvin emphasizes the other, and Thomas would say, amen, amen. You know, I mean, it's, he wouldn't disagree at all. Um, but but for Calvin, the Holy Spirit does there's more than just for Thomas, where it's an expression of how, you know, like how God works in the world and, and God's power. But it's actually a, a, an important theoretical category for Calvin that is doing some of the work that Thomas is doing with the philosophical 
category of substance. He's trying to say, how is it not crazy that God is both ascended and present? And Thomas uses transubstantiation to, to do that work, and Calvin uses the Holy Spirit to do that work. Yes, I'm so glad to, and I loved this about your book as well, because I think where ecumenical dialogue often breaks down is when different position, when maybe someone's really familiar with their own position, but they don't quite do justice to the, a different opinion. And right. I really appreciated your talk about Calvin. And what I loved in all of this discussion of Calvin was the role of the Holy Spirit and how central that was for Calvin, because his word choice of talking about the spiritual presence, meaning by the power of the Holy Spirit, has right. forever plagued him, maybe like substance has, and misunderstanding for physicality, right. that, yes. oh, it's just a spiritual presence, yeah. and he didn't really right, believe it. Right, because spiritual means nothing to Christians. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's crazy that we think spiritual means not really anything. <laughs> like, the Bible says, what, God is spirit? If God is is not physical, then God is not really anything. I mean, this is the most, like, bastardized philosophy a, a Christian could believe is that spirit is not really anything real, you know? So I, yeah, I'm very sympathetic with Calvin on this, like, that the Christian tradition would throw him out because of, because of this language, not throw him out, you know what I mean, De misunderstand or downplay what he was really trying to say about Christ being really present, because he used the adverb spiritually, seems, seems crazy when you think about what Christians think about God and the world and spirit and matter. Yeah, it really, it, it does. And it's, it shows, I think, how far we've come and that our understanding of spiritual means not r actually real. It's like a spiritual with air quotes there, which, which <laughs> right. is sad. But yeah. I, I want to get to maybe one other Reformation thing, because from my understanding, and it comes up with something you talked about earlier, which is actually helpful for me because I, I wasn't quite sure how this works with transubstantiation. So maybe self-indulgently, we can get to this a little bit. But Cal one of Calvin and, and Luther's problems, I, I believe both of them, but I'm almost positive Calvin brought it up, was that transubstantiation kind of violated the nature of a, a sacrament, that if the bread is no longer there, then you no longer have, you know, according to Augustine, you have the, the visible reality and the invisible grace or the invisible reality, the visible sign. Right. And so to me, I when I first heard Calvin say that with an understanding of, well, yeah, the bread kind of disappears and not, I mean, not visually, but bread goes away. It did seem to kind of resonate of, yeah, that does seem to violate the nature mm -hmm. of a sacrament. You you need that thing signified. And if you get rid of that, well, aren't you kind of squashing the sacrament? So right. if, if that was Calvin's objection or if that was someone's objection today, can we get back to how transubstantiation actually is is well aware of that problem and right. has an answer to it? Yeah, historically... Catholics have sometimes downplayed the accidents too much, you know, that, well, it's just the accidents, you know, the, the real thing, the substance has changed and only the accidents and, and following Thomas with the breakdown of the categories, when substance became one accident, well, then the rest of the accidents were really nothing but a disguise, right? And, and Thomas says explicitly, there's no deceit in the sacrament. If this is a disguise, it's not a sacrament because a sacrament needs to represent something um, to the senses. And 
it's late later theologians explicitly say that the Eucharist is an exception to the rule that there's no deceit in a sacrament. So uh, like uh, the people who are, have these, what I would say, corrupt versions of transubstantiation. So Calvin and other reformers are being honest when they say this is a problem because some Catholic theologians were saying there's deceit in the sacrament because the accidents are just a disguise. And Thomas is so clear. There is no deceit in the sacrament. The accidents are not a disguise. The accidents are the sign. That, that The accidents aren't nothing. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, we as Christians, we want to say to the modern world, the accidents aren't everything. There is something more real and deeper than just the physical. But we don't want to say the physical is nothing. I mean, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, we don't think that, that physical manifestations are nothing, you know? Um, so, the, I mean, the accidents are super important for Thomas because if you don't have accidents that truly look like, taste like, smell like, you know, act like bread, and, and, and he goes into detail, like, they rot like, they digest like, they, they act, right? These are called the actions and passions. They inebriate like, they can do what bread and wine can do. And if they can't, you don't have a sacrament. You need something that is that is in in every physical way, bread and wine. Uh, otherwise, you don't get the substance of, of, right? Because you don't have a sacrament at all. So, so Thomas would agree with Calvin. And as a Catholic, I can say, but I can't blame Calvin because Catholics started making that mistake within a generation after Thomas, you know? Yeah, and thanks for that. It it gets to one of the big points of ecumenism in the 20th and 21st centuries of going, like, let, let's look back at not only the answers they gave, but the context in which they were being given. And mm -hmm. maybe Calvin was reacting rightly to a problem, but maybe the problem he's reacting to isn't actually a problem in the proper articulation of the doctrine, which I, I think you, know, you could say it a lot better than that, but kind of sums up, a lot of kind of the ecumenical goals of the last, uh, you know, 100 years or so, or less, I guess, you know, whatever. 50, since 60 Vatican II. years, yeah. 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 And I'd love to kind of turn the corner to there. So in light of these things, in light of the fact that maybe they're actually trying to answer similar questions, and maybe they're actually, you know, disagreeing with views that aren't held, what kind of ecumenical implications do, do your findings have? Right. Yeah, I mean, this is this is my basic project, and it's, I mean, my psychologist would tell you that it stems from like my family of origin. <laughs> I mean, this is what I meant when I said I'm allergic to misunderstanding, right? Like, I watch people who who are talking past each other, and I'm like, come on, guys, like just listen. And and very often, the, a, a good tool for that is what's the what's the question they're trying to answer? Because if they're answering a different question than you think they're answering, their answer is not going to make any sense to you. And you're gonna see you're gonna see conflict that's not really there. Now, I don't want to pretend there's no conflict. What I want to do is I want to say you won't accurately locate the real source of conflict if you're fighting on the surface, right? So in the end of the book, I don't say Luther and Calvin and Thomas all agree. I say they had the same intention, and I, I boldly kind of argue. I think I think Calvin uh, Thomas had better tools and used them to greater effect than Luther and Calvin. Uh, and I think his success could actually help Luther and Calvin in their own 
projects or now their theological descendants, right? So I, I'm I'm willing to boldly state, I think Thomas more or less got it right. Um, but I want to say Luther and Calvin um, had a lot more in common than we think. And if we look really carefully, and this is a lot of what the book does, we look at their historical context, we look at their philosophical context, we look at their theological concerns, we look at all these things, we can understand how close they got and where they missed. And then from a Catholic point of view, I can say, well, where they missed, that's where I can zoom in now and have a conversation. Um, but only if I've identified it really accurately. And so I need to be able to write in a way that a Lutheran or a Calvinist can read my articulation of their tradition and they can feel like I'm representing them fairly. You know, and if they feel that way, then we have the trust built to engage at those those remaining differences. And so I think that basic method of like trying to read the other in the best light possible, granting them all the goodwill you can, uh, and then digging deep. That doesn't mean you don't think they made mistakes. I, I say very honestly, I think Luther and Calvin made mistakes. But here's how I understand their mistakes in light of their larger project and their basic intention. Um, and, and, and more than that, I can even learn from them. Even if I think they were wrong on this point or that point, I still think they said other things that are very helpful, uh, that can complement my own understanding from a Catholic tradition, right? So I think that method um, is applicable to any ecumenical question. It, it, Mary, the Pope, purgatory, like, let's be clear about what people are actually saying, why they're saying what they're saying, what their language means, what it doesn't mean, you know, we spent 450 years trying to win arguments, and very often when you try to win an argument, one of the one of the standard practices of humanity is to misrepresent your opponent. And like I watch it on Facebook and I, I like I lose sleep at night when people are misrepresenting their opponent to win an argument instead of engaging with their colleague to try understand what is true and good. And like that's like the basic anxiety of my life. <laughs> That's why I'm a theologian and an ecumenical theologian is because like I care about the truth, but but I but I recognize that you don't get to the truth by misrepresenting what other people say in order to win. You know, and and that like so there's there's you know Brett's method. Uh, it's not just my method. I mean it's it's basic best practices in ecumenism more generally, but articulated in my own particular you know through my own lenses. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I mean this is the space I'm in in a different way, but in hosting conversations between people of different from across the Christian tradition and trying to figure out what it is that we're united in, what are the differences, and how can we get to the bottom of those issues? And you're so right that so often the temptation is to to look at these as arguments of, okay, I'm going to win this battle, and in order to win this battle, the shortest road there is to make their position look worse, which actually doesn't help anyone, right? Because no. defeating a straw man do doesn't bring us any further forward. You you convince the people who are already on your side. And and what that leads to is polarization, right? I mean, all you do is consolidate the camps against one another. Uh, and, and then we live with these false images of the people on the other side. And that's how Catholics and Protestants lived for 450 years. Some of us still do today. And the same basic social dynamic, we can watch it happening in American politics. Uh, you know, 
you just you 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 don't you're not even interested in hearing the genuine concerns or positions of the people on the other side. They are evil and must be defeated. Uh, and and if that's true, then anything is justified, right? If they if 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 they must be defeated to save the nation or whatever else, then then a little lie about them that that uh, you know gains more support for your side is so easy to justify in your own mind. It's just you know, and the, the Christ, Christian integrity refuses that game. You know, I mean, it's it's Caiaphas's logic in the end. Right. Like I have I have a, a worthy political goal and therefore I can sacrifice whoever gets in the way. Uh, and and Jesus says it's better to get killed by that system than to cooperate with it. Like that, it's like it's that simple. Right. Like Christians should should stand against that logic to the point of death rather than compromise. Because what happens when you compromise with it? You make other victims. That's what you do, and, and so, yeah. I, I now I'm on a whole other topic. This, but this is my po- political polarization rant. But I think ecumenism and and good ecumenical practice is great practice for just living in society with other people who aren't like you. You know, Thomas Aquinas says um, people don't believe false things because they want to believe false things. Everyone is trying to believe true things. They're trying to. And so even when they believe something false, try to figure out what the true thing that they're trying to believe is and work from there. Because no one's like, oh, I I want to be evil. I want to be wrong. I want to be ugly. I want, no, people want good, true, beautiful things. So that's a human universal. So what is the good, true or beautiful thing your neighbor is at least attempting? And, And let's work from that. Yes, I could have a whole conversation about this. I am so passionate about these things and that basic idea. Yeah, that someone else's opinion makes sense to them. That doesn't mean it's right, but they're not willfully trying to be duplicitous. Like if we want in order to understand them, let's embody the the questions they're asking and the experiences that they're coming to these things. Anyway, there's there's so many things there. I want to ask two more things, though, before we wrap up. Yeah, the. The first thing I want to get at is something I appreciated about your approach to ecumenism. Again, that that's not solely where we're going here, but is the fact that not only do we look at the context and look at the agreements, but we're willing to say that there are disagreements because I think that's where ecumenism can get itself in trouble when it just wants to paint with too broad of a brush and say, well, we're close, mm-hmm. you know, who cares? Let's just fill in those gaps for you. And I know this is a big question, but if you could put your finger on maybe something for Luther, Calvin, or together, what is the, what is like one of the biggest problems you see as, hey, even though they were trying to answer the same question, they fell short here and this is the issue we need to press into. Right. Yeah. I would say that Luther, Luther um, did not fully appreciate the value of philosophy. So he, he had to do philosophy because you can't not do it. You're like, you're doing it right now. Um, And so he his his philosophical attempts were a little ad hoc and a little inconsistent, and it led to some sloppy work. Um, and so I mean I go through some details like you talked about sign and signification uh, as a key element in sacramental theology. I I think Luther gets sign and signification scrambled 
uh, because he's not attentive to the value of theology. And he ends up saying things that are a little incoherent and inconsistent. And so um, he, he's so passionate. He knows what his conclusion is, uh, that he's a little sloppy in his method sometimes. And it leads him, it leaves him open to charges of hyper-realism um, that's outside of the tradition that if you read other things he says, you know that's not really what he meant. And this is the trick with reading Luther is you got to read a lot of Luther because if you read a small chunk where he's upset with someone, you can assume that the hyperbole is his genuine position, but it's not, it's rhetoric. And so you really have to read widely in Luther to get a sense of what he really thought. And sometimes he, 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 he didn't do himself justice with his, with his sometimes slipshod philosophical method. So that's what I would say with, with Luther. Calvin's a more careful thinker. Um, I'm sympathetic to Calvin, but he's caught. He's caught in, in a dynamic that existed before he got there. Um, and I think in the end, Calvin's overtures to both sides led, led to his position, led to the historical situation of his imagined position as as understood by that like the average person not being his actual position because he was he was doing this careful dance between these two sides and um it, eventually the common image of calvin is what the lutherans suspected of him at his worst uh of being a, a you know a mere symbolist or a naive symbolist that doesn't do justice to him but there are things you can point to uh, that that are not implausible <laughs> that would lead in that direction. Now I'm sympathetic because his his position was a tough one, um, but I think I think he did lose the handle occasionally when he was trying to walk that balance. You know, um, like I said, Thomas I think hits the balance, but Thomas had the privilege of not being in the middle of the fight when he wrote. Maybe he could have done it anyways. I think pretty highly of Thomas, but the fact is he didn't have to. He, he was writing with a certain serenity that came from the solution having been already achieved in principle, and he just had to articulate it. Well, if you could ask anyone in the history of the Christian tradition to take a principle that's achieved, to take a solution that's achieved in principle and work it out in detail, like he's your guy, right? So, so I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the, you're, you're, you're throwing a beach ball uh, to, to the like Babe Ruth and seeing if he can hit it, right? At least yeah. that's my that's my bias. I really, you know, I think Thomas is is really good. And I appreciate what you get at with Calvin there. Of theology is done in context, and it was a really difficult context. And trying to keep both of those sides happy and not see the Reformation splinter even further as he's in the second generation and watching these things happen. Um, I can imagine it would be quite tough. And so oh, yeah. I appreciate that you draw that out. And it, it does bring an interesting question of what would have happened had Aquinas been alive at the time of the Reformation. And if he was their dialogue partner, if he was in their position, of course, we can't answer that, but it's an interesting thing to wonder about. The right. kind of concluding question I wanted to get at, and it goes back to that class with Dr. Jonathan Armstrong. I can't believe I forgot his name earlier, Dr. Jonathan Armstrong. Um, and... Great scholar. Uh, I'll link his channel and his work. But 
we had kind of a final project in this class on ecumenism of, you know, what what is it that we want to be doing to, what is Christian unity and how do we pursue it? And that was kind of like the capstone of the whole project. And, and for me, the thing that I was really trying to put my finger on was not only having, you know, one mind unity, unity in doctrine, one heart, unity kind of like in disposition, but really getting to one loaf and one cup unity of kind of like this shared Eucharist. Like that would be the pinnacle in a way of yeah. uh, ecumenism short That's of like a, a full institute. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, and it sounds like this is something you're interested in is, okay, well, if that's our goal, then we should be putting our time in. How do we figure out our differences um, that would separate that from happening? And right. so while there are differences there, and we've kind of labeled some of them, what is between here and there? Because I'll say this before I hand over the question to you. Sometimes I've mentioned, you know, rules for closed communion, and I, I get a sense that maybe I, I don't understand them completely. But what I hear on the internet, if I make a comment about closed communion, is, well, you can't take communion there because you don't believe that Christ is present in it. And then I inform them, well, actually, I do. So yeah, that doesn't right. seem like a good reasoning. So yeah, like, let, yeah. let's work through this further. And I, I know there's right. more, but maybe can you, yeah, can you no, give us the steps a, between where we're at and where we want to be? That's a great question. Yeah. So it's a Catholic misunderstanding that um, that Protestant lack of belief in real presence is the major um, barrier to, to communion. First of all, it's a misunderstanding of Protestants, uh, because while some Protestants are, are naive symbolists, lots of them aren't. And so if if uh, if that's the logic, then any Protestant who says I can affirm this, well, then you're good to go. And in fact, there are exceptional cases where let's say you are you are without access to a minister of your own communion and in deep spiritual need. Let's say you're approaching death and there's right. Um, there are times when Protestants can receive communion in a Catholic church. It's carefully circumscribed, um, sometimes interchurch marriages. Are you know um, so for example at a wedding, let's say you're a Catholic and your and your bride to be is a Protestant, um, you might receive you might get permission to receive Eucharist together at your wedding or an anniversary or something like that. There or like times of serious spiritual need, illness, whatever. Um, in those circumstances, one of the uh, necessary um, things is that you manifest Catholic belief in the sacrament. In other words, you believe in real presence. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um, the other, you know, the other um, qualifications are like no access to person of your own, uh, minister of your own communion, serious spiritual need, etc. Right. Same thing more broadly. It is a necessary thing for for open table, um, but it's not sufficient. Uh, so if we have many, many Protestants who affirm uh, real presence, what what is holding back the fundamental issue? And if I were to write a second doctoral dissertation, um, I would probably try it on this topic. It's from a Catholic point of view, it's a recognition of orders in other Christian churches. So for 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 a Catholic ecclesiology, the Eucharist is intimately tied to the, the priest who can only the priest can we say confect the Eucharist or celebrate the Eucharist, but why? Because he's got magic fingers? No, because he is in an organic relationship with the church of Christ. The priest is uh, a minister on behalf of the bishop, and the bishop is 
in communion with the bishops through time and space back to the apostles. And so it's not that the priest has magic. It's that the priest is part of the structure of the body of Christ that allows us to identify the church as the church, right? And so at Vatican II, Catholics start asking this question. We used to have a, we used to just say, well, it's easy. It's in or out. You're either in the Catholic church or you're not in the Catholic church. We can just, we can look at you and tell, right? Are you baptized in, in one of our parishes? And have you not made an, like a formal act of repudiation? Um, you're not a heretic or a schismatic, right? Those are the categories we had for non-Catholic Christians. You're a heretic or a schismatic. Schismatic if you're in the East and heretic if you're Protestant in the West. Um, of course, you could be both, actually. So, <laughs> But um, what did Vatican II say? If, um, if people have faith in Jesus, if they read the Bible, if they're validly baptized, um, then they're in real but imperfect communion with the Catholic Church. Now, we always, I mean, we, we did accept uh, heretical and schismatic baptisms. <laughs> we, wouldn't, we don't use those terms now, but we, we thought they were valid, which meant we thought something was really happening and that there was a genuine relationship with the church there. In fact, you can't be a schismatic or a heretic if you don't have some relationship with the church. <laughs> the, those terms imply relation. Otherwise, you're just a pagan. Right? Like, to be a heretic or a schismatic is to have a relationship with the church, however bizarre that sounds, right? But we but we moved, we, we, we shifted our language to saying brethren, separated brethren, but brethren, um, with a real but imperfect communion. Now, why did I give all that background? Because the next step is, what do we make of your orders? If orders are how we know we're in communion, that's how we can tell, because our priest has orders from this bishop who's in communion, right? That's the structure. If you have genuine communion, but it's not perfect, then it seems, now Now I'm getting speculative. Let me let me warn my audience. I'm not now giving official teaching. I'm, I'm getting speculative. It seems that the orders must also be real, but imperfect. It just seems to follow from the ecclesiology. And, I'll, and, and, and here's a really concrete, some Catholics will say, no, no, they're absolutely null and utterly void. Protestant orders are nothing. It's just people playing dress up, you know? It's a layman in clergy clothes. Um, that's, that's a plausible read of some elements of the tradition, but it actually, it doesn't work. And here's why it doesn't work. If you're an Anglican priest who's married and you become a Catholic, you can be ordained a Catholic priest in the Western Rite, where there is no married clergy, except these Anglicans or Presbyterians or whoever. Um, now, I shouldn't say no married clergy, because deacons are clergy. Um, no married priests, um, it, with this exception. Now, why can an Anglican priest get ordained a Catholic priest, even if he's married? I'm a Catholic layman. I can't get ordained a priest. If you're an Anglican layman, and you become a Catholic, you can't get ordained a priest. So what are we saying? We're saying there is something that we have not clearly defined, that we don't have good categories for, but there is something different about that Anglican priest than about either an Anglican layman or a Catholic layman, if he can be ordained a Catholic priest in the Western Rite, despite the fact of him being married. We acknowledge in our practice something that I think, here's my speculative part, 
could be thought about with the Vatican II's language of real but imperfect. And in fact, if we are, we accept his baptism, but we don't accept his ordination, we reordain him. Now, what the heck is that? We're saying on the one hand, there's something there. Otherwise, we wouldn't ordain him at all. On the other hand, we're saying something is missing. Otherwise, we wouldn't ordain him at all. What is it? Maybe it's something real but imperfect that needs to be brought into full communion. Those orders that are real need to be brought into communion with the Catholic Church. And that's what we're doing when we're ordaining an Anglican who was already ordained in his own tradition. So it's a little bit speculative, but I, I think that's the, that's the leading edge of the question is Catholics and our dialogue partners need to figure out categories for what, what exactly is going on in Protestant orders. And if we can wrap our heads around that, then we can start thinking about um, uh, shared communion. Uh, because because right now that is the fundamental um, thing. I think, I mean, there's other things too, but it's a fundamental expression of the basic difference in ecclesiology and structure of the church that is what prevents Catholics, at least, from thinking it's legitimate to always and everywhere share, share Eucharist. We do have exceptions, as I explained, but for it to be the normal practice, we would need to recognize one another's holy orders. That's fascinating. And for me, this was such a good exercise in getting to delve a little deeper into the way to kind of embody the Catholic perspective. Because from my Protestant theological perspective, as I'm working through this question, like th this is the thing that's worth putting our finger on for mm -hmm. ecumenism. This is the end goal. Orders wouldn't have been the thing that popped up in my head. It, uh, okay. And so that's really helpful, and I'm really intrigued, and I'll have to do more thinking on this. So thank you for that. I really appreciated that. I've really enjoyed this whole conversation. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. I'd love to kind of just wrap up by giving you the last word. If there's anything you'd like to share, just kind of to put a bow on this conversation. But also, I would love for you to let people know where they can find your podcast and uh, your books. And you also mentioned that you're working on another book. So if you, anything you want to plug, the floor right. is yours. Awesome. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy that I got to say all the things in my own notes because uh, you sent me some great questions in advance. So I, I think I've, I've said my piece on transubstantiation. Uh, if you want to know more, buy the book. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, my podcast uh, comes out every Tuesday morning. It's called Thinking Faith. You can find it anywhere you get podcasts. Um, and uh, it's, it's with my co-host, a, a colleague here at, in the Archdiocese of Regina, Deacon Eric Gurash. And we've got yeah hundreds of episodes. Um, listeners of this uh, podcast might be interested in, if they're interested in checking it out, look for the ones. I did a four-part series after I taught a course called Roman Catholicism for Protestants. I taught it at an evangelical seminary. I taught a course on Roman Catholicism. And when I got back from that, I, I did a four-part series. So if you look up uh, Thinking Faith and Roman Catholicism for Protestants, that might be you know, one topic of interest to listeners of, of your podcast. We talk about a million things. Uh, right now I'm doing, we're doing a series on um, Catholic education. And that's the subject of a book I'm writing right now. Uh, I'm trying to write a book on um, how to teach every subject from a Catholic point of view. So if you go to a Catholic high school, my argument is even your math class uh, has some important differences from the math class across the street at the public high school. Uh, and so I'm working on that um, with uh, 
our Sunday visitor. That's my my publisher for that one. Uh, tentative title: Educating for Eternity: A Teacher's Guide to Making Every Class Catholic. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at Brett Sockold. Uh, I'm called Saska Theologian on there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm around. I'm on I'm on YouTube. I've got a you know probably a dozen interview videos on YouTube if you just Google my name on there. I write a bit for Church Life Journal, which does some really good work. Um, so check check them out, Church Life Journal. And and I wrote wrote a piece on transubstantiation for them, but I've written you know lots of other things. Wrote a piece on the resurrection for them for Easter. Uh, I wrote a piece on hell uh, last November, which I people seem to like. Uh, so uh, yeah, check out those check out those things. The interviews with Jonathan Armstrong. Um, uh, yeah, Google me and you'll you'll find you'll find me around. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Salkeld. And thanks to everyone who listens to this or watches it whenever it is in the future that you're doing that. I do not take your time lightly. And I'll close, as I always do, by saying until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. And most importantly, go out and love God and love others, because truly, above all else, that will change the world. Oh, 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 oh,